0: Hey, y'all, thanks for checking in with another edition of the Russell Smith Podcast. Very excited about this episode. It features former Tennessee offensive coordinator and current ETSU head coach Randy Sanders. Randy was a very important figure in the Vols' glory days of the 1990s. Randy came to UT from Morristown in 1984, and as you'll hear it, it wasn't necessarily a slam dunk recruitment for Johnny Majors and Tennessee. He ended up staying at UT through 2005, a 21-year period in which he was a part of five SEC championships and, of course, the 1998 National Championship where he famously made his play-calling debut in the National Championship game, the first-ever BCS Championship game, after David Cutcliffe had left for Ole Miss at the end of the regular season. He went ahead and took that job, leaving Randy Sanders to make his coordinator debut in the national championship game against the Seminoles. Of course, that turned out all right for the Vols, and it turned out all right for Randy Sanders. We talked extensively about the disastrous 2005 season that saw Randy exit after the season, but uh, as I said, he landed on his feet spending time at Kentucky and, ironically, Florida State, where um, he worked with Jimbo Fisher. Randy then became the head coach at ETSU last year, where in his first season, the Bucs won a share of the Southern Conference Championship, and Randy was named SoCon Coach of the Year. A real down to earth guy. Enjoyed my talk with him immensely, and I hope you will too. Somebody I think most of all fans are pulling for. Here's my conversation with Randy Sanders. Coach. Thanks so much for taking the time to do this. I know you football coaches are constantly busy, even during the, the – there's no offseason in college football anymore, so I appreciate the time. Well, n- no problem. It, you're right, there is no offseason. When you're when you're not busy with uh, football or
1: recruiting or eligibility issues or whatever it may be, you know, you're trying to squeeze in as much family time and fishing as you yeah. can get. So, uh, uh, fortunately, we're starting to get to a little
0: bit of the fishing time, and yeah. I'm enjoying that a lot. That is that your big – off-season thing is getting out on the – are you fly fisherman, or you have a boat? Uh, you
1: know what? I, I, I fly fish. I have a boat. Uh, uh-huh. I spend a lot of time on the lakes. Uh, fishing's kind of my thing. That's what it was when I was at Tennessee uh, – at the University of Tennessee, because there so many lakes right there around. Yeah. And, uh, obviously, we got the Smokies and all the trout streams and things like that close by. And when I went to Kentucky, fishing wasn't nearly as accessible, so I kind of got into golf a little bit more. Went okay. Went to Florida State and – Got back into the fishing because fish are real big down there. And, um, you know, just being back home, it's nice to have both options. I I enjoy golf every now and then, but uh, most of the time, if I have a day, I'm either going to be on a trout stream somewhere in the mountains or uh, have my boat on the lake.
0: Good. And uh, family, I I remember when in Knoxville, uh, kids were very young. I guess they're grown now, just about grown anyway. So is that, uh, you you get time to spend with the, the whole crew together? Yeah, it, it's it's
1: it's really nice. Uh, my oldest daughter had started uh, college at UK before we left Kentucky, and uh, she ended up finishing there, graduating. Uh, met a boy. Obviously, you know he was a, a Lexingtonian. I guess is the way you say okay. it. Uh, his family <laughs> is from Lexington. Uh, works in the family business. They end up getting married, so she lives in Lexington now. It's nice to be back uh, four hours away from her. As opposed to uh, twelve, like we were in Tallahassee, so that that's been good. Uh, she actually just had uh, we we have her first grandchild. She Friday will be two weeks. Really? So, yeah. So we have my my wife. I still haven't seen my wife since the baby was born. She's been up there <laughs> the whole time. They sent me home to get me out of the way, but yeah. uh, my wife is still there. Um. So it it's it's fun to have a grandchild that way. My youngest daughter had just graduated from Florida State. Um. Right, I, I guess just a few months after I took this job, and uh, she is currently living at home with us. We, we told her she needed to come on with us; didn't need to stay in Tallahassee by herself. And um, she agreed, so she came up here. She's now uh, uh, in graduate school here at ETSU, getting a degree in, uh, or getting a master's in sports administration. So it's nice to have. Yeah. Um, it's nice to have the girls close by. Uh, it's nice to have a grandchild, but it's also nice being back, uh, in East Tennessee. I got, um, two brothers and a sister that live in the Morristown area. Okay. Um, you know, or, or here in East Tennessee. And it's, it's nice to be able to, uh, uh, you know, have a Saturday evening or a Sunday evening or Tuesday evening or whatever it may be, where one of us will start calling around and say, Hey, let's get together and have dinner. So the the eight of us counting my in-laws and, and my wife, we'll just go get together somewhere, have dinner, sit around, talk for a couple of hours, drink coffee, whatever it may be. And then, uh, yeah. you know, you, you're able to get back home and it's, um, uh, it's nice to be able to maintain those type of relationships and those
0: bonds that you've had forever. Well, congratulations on, on the grandchild. I know that's always a, a big deal for, uh, the, for the grandparents and the, and the, um, the, the kids. Too so well, it's, it's a big deal for me. I've 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 been ready for grandchildren
1: for about fifteen years now. Okay, e- even though my daughter's uh, would have been ten at the time. <laughs> uh, fortunately, that didn't happen. But uh, uh, I'm excited to be a grandparent. I can't wait to uh, you know just. Have them with me. I'll take them out on the boat. We're gonna drink Mountain Dew and eat little Debbies and there you go. smoke cigars. And I don't yeah. care if they are a little girl at four years old. We're we're still gonna learn how to smoke cigars at oh. an early
0: age. <laughs> you got to break them in young, right? Oh
1: well, that's 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 what I learned. <laughs>
0: <So>. <laughs> well, it's you mentioned uh, siblings in in Morristown, and that's where you're from. Were you born in Morristown? I was actually born in Morristown. I okay. think uh, I think my
1: family moved to Morristown. Basically, as my mom was uh, pregnant with me, but uh, I'm I'm not positive about that. But uh, I was born in Morristown, grew up there, and, and uh, was fortunate to live in the same uh, same town until
0: I went off to college. Pretty typical uh, childhood, I imagine. You played a lot of sports growing up, as obviously you're a you're hurricane over there at East and uh, yeah. playing quarterback there. Did you play other sports too? Uh, I grew up playing baseball, you know, basketball.
1: Uh, uh wrestled uh, you know participated in, in track and field stuff it, you know at that time you it was encouraged to do everything you know to yeah. to to do stuff um it's not really it, that way anymore it's it's not that way and it's a shame because i i think um i think young people miss out on a lot when you don't participate in the other sports and and i know from a recruiting standpoint i love i love having two sport guys and i think most college coaches appreciate having two sport guys because uh you develop certain skills certain traits and all that in football but there's no question that you develop other skills whether it's basketball uh, track baseball um uh, wrestling things like that that um uh, that help you help you along the way and um you know we used to get out of school and you, you went home and Fortunately, there were a lot of uh, had a lot of friends in, you know close by to where I grew up, and uh, we would all gather up after school. And if it was in the summer, we played baseball most of the time. Mm-hmm. If it was in the fall, you played football. If it was uh, some other time, you played basketball or uh, kickball, stickball. We were always playing something, and uh, it, it was nice to grow up in a in a, a town where
0: we were allowed to do that. What do what do you think the the, the specialization craze? Because I hear a lot of coaches talk about how, hey, I like to recruit multi sport athletes from high school. Um, is it at the high school level where that's become so competitive that coaches are put pressure on the kids to specialize in their sport? Oh, I'm a basketball coach; don't want you playing football because you miss the preseason practice. Do you think it's on the parents chasing those scholarships? Is it little from column A, little from column B? Uh, I- that's a great question, Russ. I, I would think it probably comes from a lot of different areas. I think
1: uh, I don't. I don't talk to that many uh, high school football coaches that are wanting their guys to specifically play football. Now, if you're going to play football, I do think if you're going to play football, baseball, basketball, if you're going to play multiple sports, uh, there's no question one of them kind of has to be your priority because usually there is some overlap, and when when you end up overlapping whether it's season practice time whatever you know there has to be yeah. that one that takes priority and um uh there has to be a choice to be made but um uh, you know i was fortunate i uh, my high school coach carlos saltizer you know i think was an outstanding football coach but i think his first love was baseball and he had been a baseball coach so when it came time for baseball season he 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 was understanding well he did nothing to discourage it I, I'm not gonna say he told us to go play but he never said uh, he, he, he never give you any negative tone about playing baseball or uh, track or, or or wrestling or whatever whatever else it was I did it was just uh, you know hey enjoy enjoy high school do everything you can to Help Morristown East and do everything you can to help Morristown East uh,
0: succeed in whatever sport it was. So you're playing at Morristown East and having success as a quarterback, and all of a sudden Johnny Majors, I guess, shows up on, on campus, getting recruited a little bit. Uh, does you know East Tennessee boy? That must have been uh, you know a dream come true to be recruited by the Vols. Were you recruited by other schools? Did you give any thought going anywhere else, or uh, what was the college recruitment process like for you? Uh, well, you know, recruiting was much, much different, um, in
1: the early eighties when I, when I was growing up, I, I was fortunate that, um, I grew up with, uh, a wide receiver named Toby Pearson and, uh, Toby Pearson and I had been in the same grade. I actually repeated the seventh grade. Um, I tell people it's cause I had so much fun in seventh grade. I had to stay and do it again. But, uh, in reality, I was a little bit young for the class. Okay. And, uh, you know at the at, at that time kind of red shirting for athletics or whatever it was was kind of a new thing but uh um so you
0: did that so, to, so getting, i did that okay. i repeated
1: the 7th grade actually billy taylor who's on our staff the defense coordinator grew up in morristown as well he did the exact same thing and huh. he he ended up going to west he was a year ahead of me but uh um so i repeated 7th grade we grew up we were in the same class up till then then he ended up being a year ahead of me Uh, and he was recruited pretty heavily and ended up going to Georgia tech. And, uh, so there were a lot of college coaches around the, the, the school around the program, uh, there for a few years between himself and, and, uh, the recruiting I got, um, you know, at, at that time there was no restrictions on telephone calls. Uh, there was no restrictions on how often you could get calls. And there was really no restriction on who could call. I remember walking in the house, uh, one day from school, my mom's kind of bouncing around the house. She just got phone with Joe Namath, where Joe Namath had called for Alabama. Wow. You know, or I can remember talking to Richard Todd. I can remember talking to, uh, we were talking about fishing earlier. I can remember talking with Bill Dance. Really? really? Bill Dance always <laughs> yeah, yeah. wore the it's Tennessee the hat uh-huh. and everything else. And uh, Bill Dance called a few times and talked about uh, uh, Tennessee and everything else, but he also— me he's going to take me fishing. I'm still waiting on that fishing trip. Really? Yeah. Never, yeah. never got to go fishing. Yeah, it was one of those unfulfilled, dance, huh? unfulfilled recruiting promises. Uh oh. <laughs> but um, so, and it started really. I, I was fortunate. I, uh, I started as a quarterback at Marstown East at 14 years old as a freshman, and uh, which was pretty unusual at that time for for the largest division in Tennessee. And uh, had a lot of success, especially as a sophomore. So the recruiting really kind of started when I was a freshman. Uh, picked up even more as a sophomore uh, and got to the point where, you know, that junior and senior year, the phone was ringing pretty much constantly. The hook, yeah. There there was, like I said, there was no limits on, on the phone calls. And did that get old after a while? Uh, it got very old after yeah. a while. There's no question. Um, you know, because you would sit down and eat dinner as a family, which I, I was fortunate to grow up in a family that did that. We would sit down and have dinner. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, uh uh starting at about six thirty, seven o'clock, the phone would ring and it would pretty much ring till eleven and if you weren't on yeah. it. it. It was pretty constant and um pretty much uh Sunday, Sunday through Thursday night, that, wow. that was pretty much the way it was. Um I can remember that's back when you obviously there were no cell phones and and we had uh we were one of those uh, fancy families that had two phones in the house. Oh yeah. You know, and uh, I can remember dad um, going and finding the longest cord he could find uh-huh. because, the you know, the phone was mounted on the wall. So you walk around with it and you're and just kinda, glued to the wall. Yeah, there. between yeah. the kitchen and the living room was where it was. But he finally got a cord that was long enough where you could actually sit down in a chair <laughs> in the living room yeah. without having to drag one of the kitchen table chairs Notal over. And a uh idea. And um, uh, so, so that part was different. It, uh, the, the three main schools I considered coming out were, were Georgia, Alabama, and, and Tennessee. Uh, honestly, I had, my family is primarily from Georgia. That's where most of my aunts and my okay. uncles and everything. And and uh,
0: so it wasn't a slam dunk for Tennessee necessarily. N-
1: not at all. Honestly, I always thought I was either going to go to Georgia or Alabama. That was that was really the choices really? I thought. Um, grew up loving Georgia. That I can remember. My dad and and uncles, things like that, get around or get together, and i remember driving out somewhere and finding a, a top of a hill, uh. So my dad and uncles could listen to Larry Munson broadcast the Georgia games, wow. and uh, me and some of my cousins were usually around listening or playing ball or you know shooting BB guns or whatever it was, you know, doing something to entertain ourselves while our, while our dads were listening to Larry Munson do the do the Georgia football games. Um, Alabama, obviously, with Bear Bryant, had had tremendous success. Really admired what he, what he stood for and what he had accomplished. But um, um, you know, being from East Tennessee, Tennessee obviously was um, a school that I wanted to to look into and consider. Uh, I would say all the way up. Really through uh, Christmas, New Year's, everything else, I still thought I was probably going to go to either Georgia or Alabama. That was that was the plan. Tennessee was in there because uh, they were the state school, uh-huh. and and I appreciated what they did. But um, when well, it got down to it, I just felt Tennessee was the best place for me. I um, close to home kind of thing, maybe. Uh, well. Bear Bryant had retired. Ray Perkins was that uh, had taken over at Alabama. Okay, obviously things were a little bit different there. Yeah, uh, Georgia is just coming off the Herschel Walker years, and um, you know it was a great, great place to play if you were a tailback, but it wasn't necessarily a great place to play if you were a quarterback. And um, when it, when I Weighed everything and 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 looked at it. Uh, I just felt Tennessee was probably the best place for me overall as a quarterback. It it, um, it was a decision made on logic, not on the emotion. And um, uh, you know, it it, it it served me well through through the years. Just haven't gone through the process because. You know, when you recruit guys now, you have to figure out: are they going to make an emotional decision? Or are they going to make a logical mm-hmm. decision? Are they going to do the one that makes sense, yeah. or the one they want to do? Uh, and I did the one that made sense more so than the one I wanted to do. And uh, obviously, went to Tennessee, fell in love with the place, and and it was a special place for a long time.
0: Well, you were you were there for for so long, as uh, you know, your playing career bled right over into your coaching career, and you stayed there through two thousand five. I'm I'm sure you must occasionally ponder what would have happened if you had gone to Georgia or Alabama. You think you'd still be a coach? Yeah, you, there's no way of knowing. There's no way of
1: uh, knowing if, if I would have got into coaching. There's no way of knowing if I would have uh, played more, played less, if I'd have won a SEC championship, which we were fortunate to win SEC championship at uh, Tennessee. I, I made a lot of great friends and uh, – amongst the teammates and things like that I found my wife at the University of Tennessee so life would have been much different but uh, uh, I'm a big George Patton guy you know George Patton says uh, you have to make a decision then you're going to make it the right decision so when I went to Tennessee I kind of went into it and didn't really look back and uh, went about trying to make
0: it the right decision at what point uh, you're at Tennessee in the the mid-late 80s, you know, uh, the Johnny Majors era is really taken off. Uh, Tennessee's rebuilt the program, uh, eight championships in 85, 89, 90. Um, at what point you're playing do you decide that this coaching thing might be a route from? Is that something you had always thought of, or did that just sort of happen organically?
1: Uh, gosh, I, I guess it's something I'd always thought of. Um, Couple of things that happened, and, and I don't want to bore everyone with all these old stories, but um, I had actually graduated, got my degree in nineteen in December of nineteen eighty seven. I, I got my degree at that point. Uh, was not going to come back and play from my fifth year, and I'm sitting at home in August. Um, hadn't worked, hadn't been working out, hadn't really been doing anything. Phone rang one day, and it was Johnny Majors. Um, 1988, Jeff Francis was getting ready to be senior. We were in the same class, same recruiting class, and great friends, and still great friends today. But Jeff Jeff Francis was starting quarterback. Sterling Hinton was kind of penciled in to be the backup, and Sterling had broken his foot that morning in practice. And um, Johnny Majors was calling me basically asking if I would consider coming in being the backup until Sterling's foot healed, you uh-huh. know, and, and there was no bones about what my role was going to be. It was basically to be a six, eight-week fill-in guy just in case. Um, I had explored a little bit of the job world, things like that, was uh, um, looking at some options and, and some, you know, which way I was going to go. I had gotten engaged during this period, Um and I think just being away from the team, being away from the camaraderie, being away from the guys made me want to uh, get into coaching. So kind of part of the the, the agreement I had with uh, Coach Majors for coming back and being the backup for six weeks and doing that was he was going to hire me as a graduate assistant when the season was over to get into coaching. And um, so I came back and, and played at that point and And um, – uh, coach Majors, as he always was, was was good to his word and and uh, give me a start in coaching at, at graduate assistant level. And then when something came open, um, you know, give me my first opportunity as a full time coach at Tennessee, which um, you know doesn't happen very often. That your first job is is somewhere in the Southeastern Conference, yeah. or, or much less at a program like Tennessee. You know, usually you you're starting off at ETSU hoping to get to Tennessee, and I, I was fortunate. I, my first job was at the University of Tennessee, and um, yeah, obviously it was uh, something I enjoyed because I stayed there for a long time.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, there was uh, a right place at the right time element to it, and it seems like, you know, you you had that progression where I, I think you started out – did you start at wide receivers or running backs? I actually assistant? started
1: at wide receivers, okay. and, and which was interesting. It, it was um, – had some a good guys, but I was coaching three guys I had actually played with, and you know I, I can remember um, after practice I might be running them for doing something, and they'd be like, "Well, well why why are you running me for this? You, you're the one taught me how to do that." And I'm like, "Well, yeah. you should have known that's why you was going to get caught, you know? Because yeah. uh, you should have known not to use that back
0: stairwell to try to sneak out or whatever it was." But, um. um so these are some great wide receivers at this time, too. Who, who was in that room? Well, right? at
1: that time, it was uh, I had Carl Pickens, I had uh, Craig Faulkner, uh-huh. I had JJ McCleskey, I had Corey Fleming. Wow. Um, we had got Ron Davis who uh-huh. ended up moving to defense. Yep. Um, so that was that was kind of group. Um, um, Rodney Ruth was in there. Um, Cause I know I'm leaving somebody out, but it, it was a really good group of guys, and for the most part, um, I was accepted, and and uh, they took me as their coach. Um, you know, there there were, there's always a few uh, moments where there's tension between the players and coaches, and, and the fact that I had played with a lot of them and was as young as I was didn't help a few times. But uh You weren't
0: it, a, a stern authority figure in their eyes. It was, it was, I was still
1: more one of them yeah. a little bit. And and uh but they knew I think they knew that I knew what I was doing, what I was talking about, and, and they accepted being coached. They didn't they didn't rebel against being coached and being uh um instructed on how to improve they, they, they wanted to
0: get better and they wanted uh, the team to win and they, they received the coaching so you were famously thrown into the fire as the coordinator after coach Cutcliffe leaves for Ole Miss right before the 98 national championship game but you had um, a, a pretty good progression from being a grad assistant to an assistant coach for about 10 years there so do you feel like that you know uh, that progression of coaching a couple of different positions, watching uh, you know how Coach Fulmer did it, how Coach Cut did it—that mu- you must have felt pretty well prepared just by virtue of the experience that you had when that situation with Coach Cutcliffe leaving for Ole Miss happened. Well, I, I did, I I did feel prepared at that time. It was. Um...
1: You know, Philip. When he when I first started, he became coordinator. Walt Harris had just left, and uh, who was my quarterback coach and the offense coordinator? Well, he had just left and, and went to uh, be the head coach at University of Pacific. Uh, coach Fulmer took over as the offense coordinator, uh, and, and, and did a phenomenal job. But you know, he had always been the offensive line coach. Coach Cutcliffe moved to quarterbacks, but Coach Cutcliffe had been the tight end coach and was more involved in the offensive line play. So when I first started out, um I kind of helped Coach Cutcliffe with the with the quarterbacks when I when I was a graduate assistant and helped him make that transition from being more of an offensive line guy to learning quarterback play and and and, and the mechanics of that. Obviously, David's a great football coach and he's a great friend uh but there there was a learning curve there for him. There was a learning curve for me just learning how to coach and 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 what was actually involved in it and uh but philip never he was he never was one of the uh <clears throat> coordinators that felt like he had all the answers he was always listening to input um, and 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 Philip and David and i uh developed a really close relationship and a really close bond and and even though I was young I was included in that mix of um really being involved in the game plan and the day-to-day operations the the guts of the offense and you know Kippy Brown was there for a while left and come back you know and, and but Kippy was involved but the the offense kind of evolved to be an our offense. You know, there were there were a lot of things that had been carried over from when Walt was there, but there were a lot of things that uh, got changed. A lot of things that evolved, which which is natural. Offenses mm-hmm. happen like that. So it was kind of uh, it was kind of our offense, and we could sit around. New coaches could come in, whatever. But the three of us always spoke the same language, and we were always involved, and it was. When, when Philip was calling plays, and even when uh, uh, David Cutcliffe was calling plays and they were the offense coordinator, it was never um, everybody just shut up and listen. It was a much more of a group effort. So when the time came, uh, the strangest part of calling plays against Florida State was not being the one calling the plays the strangest part was now it was philip and i and not philip david and i it was just two of us instead of three of us and um because we 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 had a pretty unique relationship and a pretty unique bond there for a long time and and become uh, a, kind of a three-way partnership that uh, served us well through the 90s. Yeah, and it seems,
0: it, it seems like that is is so rare these days to have that same system. It's now like, uh, the offense didn't work very well last year. Well, we go bring in a new guy, change terminology, a whole new system. And right. uh, I guess it was just a, a different time. But there was still a lot of that change in the game, generally speaking, at that time. But Tennessee was unique in that – you had, as you, you put it, you know, your own system there that uh, went from, you know, Coach Harris to Coach Fulmer to Coach Cut to you. Well, it, it was unique. And the thing, the other thing that was unique
1: now is we had very little turnover. You know, you uh, Phillip and David were both coaches on the staff when I was being recruited. Mm-hmm. So I had five years of history with them as a player and then uh as you mentioned basically ten years coaching with, with coach cutcliffe after being with him for five years. So we were together fifteen years. Uh by the time I left Tennessee, you know, I had been with Philip Fulmer from basically nineteen eighty four through two thousand five. So we had a lot of history together. The one thing that that I think made Tennessee very unique um for for a number of years was you know, you, you had Philip, who had been there for however long he was there. I think, what, it was 17 years before he became head coach? I, I, I don't remember. He was there for a long mm-hmm. time. Maybe I'm off on my Well, numbers, over but, 10, probably. But yeah. he, he was there for a long time. Cuckliff was there for a long time. You know, John Chavis came in, in 1989 and was there through Philip's yeah. tenure. So he was there. I was there. Um when we brought recruits on campus and and tennessee is a is a phenomenal place it 's a phenomenal job, but it is a hard job because you have to recruit so hard and, and it's such a big part of what you do. You have good talent in Tennessee, but it it was hard at that time, especially to find um 25 guys year in and year out from the state of Tennessee that were good enough to win the SEC championship or compete for the national championship. They're, they just did not exist. There's there's not that many. Uh, the population base of Tennessee is probably mm-hmm. not good enough. So you have to go to other places. When we brought kids on campus, what do you sell? We had tradition, we had facilities, we had all those things. But there's a lot of places with tradition. There's a lot of places with great facilities. There's a lot of places that have an awful lot to sell. So how how do you get a kid from uh, uh, say Louisiana, because I recruited Louisiana, to go to turn down LSU, uh, Texas A&M, which isn't that far, which is a pretty phenomenal place, go past Auburn, go past Georgia, go past Alabama to come to Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And the thing we had to sell was the family atmosphere it, because we we were a family. Uh, I can remember when Coach Former's oldest daughter was born. You know, I can remember when uh, when his three daughters were born. Uh, I can remember when uh, David Cutcliffe's children were born. You know, they were – for the most part, they were at my wedding. And and we had grown up together. We had evolved. Our kids had grown up together. Our wives had history with each other. So when kids came on campus for official visits, it was a family because we had been together so long. Uh, we had, we not only grown up as coaches together, but we'd grown up as people. And, um, Our children had all grown up together, so it it truly was a family atmosphere, and uh, there's no question, that made a huge, huge difference with so many recruits that we were able to get, didn't, and and you don't, you don't, everybody tries to create that vibe, you try to create that, but it's never as genuine as it was at that time, and you're not going to get that if you have different coaches coming and going consistently.
0: Obviously, you know, we talk about the buildup of uh, Tennessee football to that, you know, the glory period of, I think, 95 to 99, 45 and 5 record, whatever it was. Um, everybody points to the 85 Sugar Vols as like a turning point in Coach Major's rebuilding. Was there a, you know, whether it was Peyton coming or uh, breaking the streak to Alabama in 95, was there a, a specific turning point you can point to where you're like, you know, th- we went from a team that was competing for SEC championship on a regular basis to a team that's competing for the national championship.
1: Um, uh, well, it, that's a great question. I've thought about it quite a bit, and and honestly, I think there were two two things. One, it, and one of them gets overlooked, but I think I felt like it was huge. Uh, the year I come back to play, nineteen eighty eight, we start off the season zero and five. We had a ton of injuries. Uh, scheduling was tough. You know, you, you schedule a Washington state who you feel like is going to be a win. And, uh, you know, they've got Dennis Erickson and, and Tim Rosenball was a quarterback and they had a running back named Bruce and they were really, really talented football team and, uh, came in and has like, I don't remember what 42 to seven at halftime or mm. 41 to seven or whatever, whatever the case was, was beating the brakes off of us. Um, we, but we start off the season 0 and five. Finally, we start getting healthy. We start getting players back. We start getting guys that uh, back in place. Uh, caught a little break with the schedule. And I'm sorry, we actually started the season 0 and six. Uh started 0 five. Yeah. Well, we started 0 and five. We had some coaching changes. Uh, Coach Major stirred up the staff a little bit. Yeah. You know, uh, Alabama fired was, Ken Donahue. Uh, we play Alabama the next week. And, but you and played them – You played, played them tough, yeah. yeah. Played them, played them very uh, tough. They end up beating us at the end. Mm-hmm. But then we end up finding a way to win the last five games. And we had a young team. Uh, I can remember my recruiting class. I think there I, – I would have to go back and look exactly. But it seems like there were six of us in that recruiting class that were still around to be seniors. Uh-huh. Uh, there weren't very many. But we took a lot of pride in the fact that we helped get that thing turned around and win the last five. Then we turn around in 1989 and went, I think 11 and one and beat Arkansas in the cotton bow, uh, another sec championship in 1990, you know, had, had probably a better team in 1991, just didn't have the, uh, or, or more talented team. I should say, didn't have quite the chemistry. Didn't, didn't quite get it done. Um, you know, and, and kind of springs us on to what we did in the '90s. So I, th- I think the fact that we were able to get that season turned around and win the last five, um, and and get through that adversity, was was a big turning point. The other thing I think was a huge turning point, and um, was Al Wilson, uh, Leonard Little, and Peyton Manning. I think when we had those three together. They're in the uh, uh mid late nineties right in that period you were talking about and just the leadership they exhibited the uh, um, work ethic that they took to the practice field uh when when you when you have three players like that that were as good as they were as talented as they were uh working as hard as they did, nobody else on the team had an excuse nobody else um Nobody else could go out there and take a day off. Yeah. And th- I think that changed the whole work ethic. You know, it's one of those things we try, you try to build as a coach. We had made progress. There's no question it was heading the right direction. But those three guys truly changed the program. And um, it's a shame that. Uh, you know, you only have four years of eligibility to play. Because if we could have kept them around as eight or ten or twelve year vets, like what happens in the NFL, it would have been, it would have been
0: interesting to see what kind of teams we could have had. So things are are cruising along. Coach Cut leaves. Uh, you, you slide in there and uh, you go to the championship game again in '01, again in '04. Uh, 2005 rolls around and it was just one of those years. It seemed like for Tennessee, everything that could go wrong. Did go wrong, and um, I guess unfortunately for you, you kind of—I I don't know if scapegoat is the right word for it—but that ended up being it for for you at, at Tennessee. Um, obviously, you've come through it okay, uh, <laughs> you you survived. But at the time, I mean, that must have just been incredibly difficult and stressful for you.
1: Well, it, it, there's no question; it was hard, and it was it was. Uh, it was a very strange, unusual year. You know, 2004, we didn't have a lot of expectations, kind of. We we had uh, lost Casey Clawson after the 2003 season, who had had been a tremendously productive quarterback for us. We had lost some good players. 2004, we're playing with two freshman quarterbacks, uh, Eric Ains, Brent Schaefer. Uh, I think expectations for Tennessee standards at that time were – were, were not real high you know if i think everybody thought uh, it would probably be one of those eight nine win seasons you know <laughs> those crummy eight nine yeah win those seasons, crummy huh? eight <laughs> nine win seasons but uh you know we would get through it and, uh-huh. and that's kind of what was out there um you know and and, and that team clicked whatever it was we had uh we had a experienced offensive line that uh, did a great job. I remember Jason Respert was such a leader for us at center that year, and, and did a tremendous job. Uh, I can remember just telling those young quarterbacks, "If Jason tells you something, just you just tell everybody else what he told you. Don't 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 argue with him." Um, and and defense picked it up. The schedule was good because we we opened with uh, UNLV. Mm-hmm. Then we have like an an open date, and then we play again, and then we had an or, or maybe we didn't have open date after UNLV, but it was that on a was on Sunday like, or something. That was on a yeah. Monday, I think. Uh, okay. It was Labor Day, yeah. it seems like. Um, but then we have a, an extended period before we play again, uh. and then we have another little break. So I can remember uh, part of my selling point with Philip about going with the freshman quarterbacks was I almost had like seven weeks or eight weeks before we almost got into conference play to get those guys ready, counting preseason practice, you know, it was, it was an extended period there and, uh, you know, things went well, we go to cotton bowl, finish well, uh, you know, Schaefer gets hurt and then Ainge gets hurt and Rick Clawson comes in, did, did a tremendous job. And, and, um, Rick in many ways won that football team. You know, he, he won over the guys in a lot of ways. And, and Eric was a tremendous guy, tremendous uh, uh, talent, and and still one of my favorite guys I've ever coached and been around. He, he's a tremendous human being, but uh, Rick kind of took that football team from him. And I think the next year when you have kind of the competition, you know, Ainge gets named to starter. I think there were a lot of guys on that football team kind of disappointed, you know, a little bit because mm-hmm. they 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 were kind of rick guys and um ainge probably starts pressing too much puts too much pressure on himself uh doesn't play great you know uh rick comes in and and rick was a good solid quarterback but there was no question who the most talented guy was and um so it kind of went back and forth you know we we have some guys get beat up get injured we have um and and it wasn't um it wasn't the kind of injuries that necessarily kept guys out of being able to play, but they were playing at 70% instead of a hundred percent. and weren't able to practice as much, you know, got Robert meets and CJ Fa and Chris Hannon, uh, a number of linemen. It seems like, uh, uh, first five games, we had a different center every week, you know, whether yeah. it was Richie Gandy or, um, Aaron Sears, I think, even even snapped, learned how to snap. Uh, you know, it was just a constant revolving door. And uh, we were just never able to get any chemistry. Now, uh, where the blame lies, I don't know. But I know that offensively, we didn't play the way we needed to play. We weren't as productive as we needed to play. And, and I've never been one to sit around and make excuses. You know, the, all, all those things were factors, but – Ultimately, I was the offense coordinator, so the, the, the responsibility fell with me. I had no problem with that, and that's, it, it just became time to go. I, I had felt like, honestly, that um, from a professional standpoint, I probably should have left earlier than I did, much earlier. Uh, but when you love a place as much as I, you know I, I love Tennessee, as much as I enjoyed Knoxville – uh, my wife was from Cleveland, Tennessee. I was from Morristown. We were right there, close to grandparents. Our daughters were happy. It's hard to it's hard to be selfish and say, from a coaching professional standpoint, it's time to go when everything else is working out so well.
0: When when you say you should have left earlier, are you talk about in that season or earlier in your career. Like earlier a, in my career, not it, not
1: not. Yeah. And, and I had uh, several opportunities to go to different places, whether it was. Uh, Different uh, coordinator jobs, whether it was uh, he- head coaching jobs at some places, and and even a couple opportunities in the NFL. But uh, um, life was so good in so many ways not not just from a football perspective, mm-hmm. but just um, you know, as I mentioned, my girls were happy they they loved living in Knoxville. They had their friends. They they enjoyed their schools. My wife was happy. Um, you know, we we were pretty settled in
0: Knoxville, and there was no reason for us not to be. Well, and as I recall, when, uh, that, um, when, when things were going wrong in 05, I think you resigned during the season, and it seemed like Coach Fulmer did not want that to happen. And correct me if I'm misreading or, mis uh, you know, I obviously wasn't there, but it seemed like uh, he didn't want to let you go and um, didn't want to place the blame on any one person, wanted to, to fix this situation, and it was just whether it was – the The media or fan pressure just everything um felt like there had to be some sort of move well th- there did need to be some sort of move and and
1: uh uh i felt like it, it philip did not w- he did not want to he did not want me to leave at least that's what he expressed to me and uh he tried to talk me out of it when i did it he tried to talk me out of it about three weeks after it happened and, and the let's fix this thing and and then even after the season was over and uh, uh, Cutcliffe had been hired as a coordinator there were still conversations about hey let's, let's get the band back together yeah, let's get of, the thing uh, back together but uh, I knew in my heart it was time to go I, I can remember after that uh, South Carolina game which was the game before I resigned When I saw my wife, when I saw my mother and father, and I saw what they were going through, it didn't matter what I was going through. They couldn't continue on this path. Mm -hmm. You know, the the stress on them was too much. Um, You know, as a coach, you're kind of, I'm not going to say you're insulated because you're, you're, you're laid out there. There's no question. But at the same time, I'm not the one going to the grocery store. You know, I'm not the one that uh, is home all day. I'm I, I'm I'm at work, busy doing everything, so I don't have time to turn the TV on. You know, yeah, uh, or have to get in the car and turn the radio off every time you get in the car or whatever it was. That's what my wife and parents were going through, and um, I, I knew at that point something needed to be done.
0: Well, and you know, you you land on your feet in the league. At Kentucky, your first time out of East Tennessee as as a professional football coach, and um, you know you you were at Kentucky at a period where that program suddenly came to life. Get Coach Andre Woodson and and be a part of. Uh, uh, I guess you were one of the architects of the uh, the Matt Rourke game and breaking the streak <laughs> against Tennessee, which had to be uh, a bag of mixed emotions for you. But uh, that was uh, what did you learn about yourself and and coaching during your time up in Lexington. You know, when it, when
1: it, it was interesting, I went to Lexington. First of all, Coach Brooks gave me the opportunity, and Joker Phillips was the coordinator at that time. Uh, and they gave me an opportunity, and I was very appreciative. I had opportunities to go to a few other places. Um, and honestly, some of the other places were, quote-unquote, bigger names. Everybody thought, you know, I mean, you got a chance to go there. You're going to go to Kentucky instead. Well, Kentucky – was four hours from my parents, you know, or three hours from my parents, actually. And my parents were getting a little bit older at that time, and I wanted to be able to to see them as much as possible. Uh, I've always I always thought Lexington would be a good place to live, and, and the thought of being able to stay in the SEC, stay three hours from my parents – uh where I can get to them they were getting close to their 80s at that time late 70s mm-hmm. and and I knew um uh, there was only so much time left you know nobody ever wants to think about that but the reality is there was only so much time with them left uh sounded way way better to me than being 12 hours away or 14 hours away or uh having almost to get on a plane to get back to see him as opposed to just being able to jump in a car, drive down, have dinner, and then turn around and come back that evening uh-huh. if you want to. Um, I think Kentucky had won um, like six games in three years, something like that. They, they, I, I don't remember exactly what the –
0: They were going through a rough patch. <laughs> they were going through a rough patch.
1: When I, got, when I got there, there were a lot of um, – uh, I can't remember exactly what the bumper sticker was, but it's like "Ditch Rich and Take Mitch." You know, Rich Brooks and Mitch Barnhart, who was you know they, everybody was ready to get rid of Mitch Barnhart because he wouldn't fire Rich Brooks.
0: It, well, and, and, and Mitch is still there. Co- Coach Brooks had been there. It took him a while—five or six years—before well, they finally.
1: He, he kind of took over a mess, honestly, uh, when when he sure. when he got the job. And there's some great stories, and we're not going to get into all those <laughs> right now, but. Um, I, I can remember getting there my first uh time watching the team work out. I was wondering where the rest of the linemen were. Where you know, where where's the varsity linemen? Where because we it, it it physically we didn't look like what I was used to at Tennessee. There was no it, it was a different level. But um you know, we start off that season, we I I we were two and three. Um just getting into the meat of the schedule, and then that team just kind of took off. And no one would have ever told me when I went to Kentucky, if I was there for uh, um, seven years, I would go to as many or more bowl games as University of Tennessee would go to over the next seven years. But that's exactly what happened. You know, we uh, got on a roll. We went to five bowl games in a row. We, We were a very competitive team. Uh, we've won some games, honestly, we probably shouldn't have, we lost a few, we should have won, but, um, uh, for the most part, I, th- I felt like we did as great, as good a job up there of maximizing our talents as as probably anybody in the country. We, we had a running joke. We, they'd be checking roll on the bus, you know, to, uh-huh. to, um get ready to go to the game from the hotel. And it was, is Andre Woodson here? Yep. Is <clears throat> Jacob Tammy here? Yep. Is Keenan Burton here? Yep. Steven Johnson here? Yep. Raphael Little here? Yep. Well, let's go. You know, <laughs> as long as we got those five, we, yeah, got, a we chance, got a chance, <laughs> you know, and, um, <clears throat> on offense. So, and and then you had guys like Wesley Woodard on, on defense who played for the Titans yeah. and, and, um, you know, wasn't big enough, fast enough, strong enough anything else to get drafted, but everywhere he goes, he's the captain of the team. That's that's the kind of person he was. Uh, you know, we recruited a guy like Avery Williamson who who's played for the Titans for a while and still playing with the Jets. Uh, Danny Trevathan, you know, we had some guys on defense that um were were phenomenal players, and fortunately they were. We needed some of those linebackers to make every tackle because we didn't have 11 quote-unquote SEC football players on defense we just had to have three or four or five really exceptional ones and and those guys uh carried a load and it, it was it as much fun as I ever had coaching there for a few years just because you take a team that has not won and suddenly they start winning uh just the energy and the enthusiasm of everything else uh uh of of the players the coaches of the fans It, it was
0: a lot a lot of fun well and I would imagine that coming from Tennessee where the expectations are so high and the pressure to win is so high to go to Kentucky and I'm sure the expectations you know it's SEC football there's there's pressure but the you know you don't have a national championship within the past 10 years to to be able to go out there and exceed expectations and um you know be the 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 young upstart group that had to be was something that you hadn't experienced before at Tennessee well you're exactly right i had never been in a position
1: where uh the players and fans if you could just get to a bowl game that would have been a great year that first year yeah, and and we did that they were so hungry just to have a winning record, they were so hungry to get to a bowl game because it had been a while. Mm-hmm. I can remember walking through the complex. My my daughters were uh, fourth and sixth grade, and we're walking through the football complex, and we get to the little Hall of Fame type area, and my oldest daughter starts counting the bowl games. She's and she goes back and counts again. She says, Daddy, I've been to more bowl games than they have. <laughs> and she was right. Wow. And she was right. You know, so where we came from and and what we had experienced was much different than what Kentucky had experienced. And being able to be a part of, of, of a team that went to five in a row was uh, special and, and you know, we mentioned Andre Woodson and Jacob Tamme, and some of those guys, phenomenal guys, uh, uh, Randall Cobb and just being able to have him and be around him. Mike Hartline, um, the the bond built with those guys and, and the type of football players
0: they were and the people they were, um, something I'll cherish forever so you you seven years at Kentucky you get to go to Florida state in 2013 Jimbo Fisher the Sabin tree you're there for five years i want to read you this to your wikipedia page I don't know if you've you've checked it lately but sure. it reads uh he you the only person to have been a part of both the very first and very last winning BCS national title games having been quarterbacks coach and offensive coordinator at Tennessee in 98 and quarterbacks coach at FSU in 2013. So, and that's your first year that once again, incredible success, uh, right out of the gate. And I'm sure you've thought about it. Uh, and they probably talked to you about it down there. Uh, ironic that you're working at the school now where, uh, you defeated in one of the defining moments of your career back in 98, your first game as coordinator.
1: Yeah, it, it was, um, uh, it was somewhat, sur- it, it was unusual. It, it's been a big running joke around my family and, and, uh, you know that being in the first and the last BCS national championship game, and and uh, there were actually two coaches that were involved in both. Uh, Odell Higgins, who had been at Florida State the whole time, so he was okay. He was at Florida State for the first one. He was at Florida State for the last one, but he didn't win both of them. I, I, I'm the only <laughs> one that can claim <laughs> to win no, both huh? of them. So there was actually two two coaches, two of us that participated in both as an assistant or in a coaching capacity. And uh, uh, I tell you when it, when I got to Florida State, it was. Um, it was a talent level that reminded me of of Tennessee you know of what we had had at Tennessee the difference was honestly that first year at uh, Florida State in in 2013 that team was not nearly as deep now we had uh James Winston at quarterback who uh was w- Has one of the greatest college quarterbacks I've ever seen or had a chance, to obviously, to be around, but a phenomenal football player. We had uh, Brian Stork, who actually coaches here for me now, uh, was our center, and he won the Remington Award. We had uh, four other offensive linemen that all played in the NFL. We had uh, Rashad Green, who left as the all-time leading receiver at Florida State. We had Kelvin Benjamin who uh, is, is still in the NFL and is one of the uh, biggest physical mismatches outside I've ever been around. Just a big guy. We had uh, uh, Devontae Freeman, who's been to a Pro Bowl with the Falcons. We had James Wilder, who uh, is in Canada and you know, was on a Grey Cup winning team and, and has had success there. Um, defensively, we... It was kind of an all-star cast, but we weren't real deep. And that, that was the thing. And once we got into that 2013 season, I think from our first game until our last game, the only real change on the depth chart, uh, our first and second teams on both sides, we had lost one guy. So we it was a team that stayed healthy. Uh, had, had we gotten a few guys hurt, it, it could have been a much much different year, but um, that that first twenty two on 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 both sides was pretty good, and uh, we were fortunate to stay healthy and and uh, anytime you got a chance to uh, run the tables and 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 win them all, that's that's pretty special. And um, anytime you have an offensive team that never I've, I've never experienced a team like that that. If they had the opportunity to make a play, they made it. The very, very few times in that uh, that whole season was a receiver open that he didn't get hit. You know, I yeah. mean, with the ball that that Jameis wasn't able to throw an accurate ball. Rarely did he ever throw an accurate ball that the receiver didn't catch it. Rarely was there ever an opportunity for a run to be made that Freeman and Wilder didn't make. Uh, you know, we had Nick O'Leary at center who won the, or tied tied in, who won the Mackey award. Um, you know, so we, we had weapons and those guys, uh, executed it. it, We would go through a week of practice and, um, this is going to sound like I'm exaggerating, but I'm not. We would go through a week of practice, uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, uh, throwing the ball around, whether it was against the scout team or our defense, who our defense was pretty good, too. And the ball might hit the ground four times, five times for yeah. the whole week. Wow. You know, go, we'd go through practices and have, you know, 150 passes, and the ball never touched the ground. Every pass would be complete. and uh, But that team had expectation that
0: they were going to make every play. And it, it it was a phenomenal thing to experience. And worked for Jimbo five years. Uh, I imagine you know that's again a, a different system, probably a different culture. Uh, seems like a very demanding guy. Did you learn a lot from him as well? I
1: did. I, I learned a lot from Jimbo. I, obviously, I learned a lot from Johnny Majors when when I first started working with him. I learned a lot from Philip Fulmer. I learned a lot from Rich Brooks. I learned I learned a lot from uh, Joker Phillips in the three years that he was the head coach at Kentucky, and then going to Florida State. um at that time, you know, I, I went there actually to coach running backs. I had taken the job of coach running backs and was looking forward to just honestly just coaching that position wow. and, and not having to be involved in the uh, filling out the call sheets and, and everything else and, and the game plan as much. James Coley, who is now the offense coordinator of Georgia. Was uh, was uh, quarterback coach and offense coordinator, and just a few weeks after I got there, he left. Had an opportunity to go to University of Miami, took it. Um, I remember Coach Fisher coming to me saying, um, uh, basically, "We you will you, are you willing to move the quarterbacks and kind of run the offense for me?" And I'm, Coach, I'll do whatever you want to. Honestly, I'd like to stay where I'm at right now. <laughs> you know. So he kind of looked, and and we interviewed a few quarterback coaches, things like that. And he looked, and he came back to me. He said, "Uh, I really need you to do this if if you're willing to do it. And I said, Coach, I told you I'd do anything you need me to do. So I didn't actually have the coordinator's title that first year, but I was scripting everything. You know, and I was doing all the game plan stuff. Well, he, was, he's
0: pretty hands on as far as play calling. He, he, he,
1: he, yeah, yeah, well, he still called the plays yeah. and and did everything. But as far as putting the plan together, putting uh, um, you know the day to day operations of it all, which is um, you know a huge part to me. That's that that's the biggest part of being a coordinator, calling the game. Uh, there's always a few situations in it that that kind of goes to field things like that, but for the most part, going into the game, everybody on the coaching staff pretty much knows what you're going to call on that first time you get third and three, or the first time you get third and six, or the first time you get uh, first down in the red zone. You know, you you those, those things are pretty much rehearsed and pretty much planned out and. Um, because that's what you that's what you do Sunday through Friday you know as as coaches when you, when we're sitting up here watching film and meeting is you kind of map those things out and uh you try to rehearse those situations and practice so most of the time players coaches aren't surprised when it happens so the calling the plays on game day uh to me is probably one of the most overrated parts of, of being a coordinator interesting you uh, it's the day-to-day things that that's, that's where the coordinators make their money. That's, that's, that's where you have to be on, on top of things. Um, now I've been in situations and and this question arose yesterday at a speaking engagement I was at about play calling. Some of the best plays I've ever called for situations didn't work just because it wasn't executed. Right. And I've also called plays and, uh, as the team is at the line of scrimmage, you're sitting there going, Oh, I don't eh, yeah. I don't like this call. And next thing you know, it's a seventy yard touchdown. You know, it, it, it still gets down it, it gets down to players. It ain't plays, it's players. You know, do, do the players execute it, or are they really uh, ready? Are have they been prepared? Have they been coached? Coaches coaches can lose a whole lot more games than you actually win. Players win games, coaches can lose them. There's no question
0: about that. But rarely do coaches actually win games on Saturdays. Well, uh, Coach, I know uh, you, you got work to do here, so we'll wrap up and, and talk about ETSU real quick here. Um, eight and four, your first year out of the game, Southern Conference Coach of the Year. It seems like you're off to a good start. Well, it's a start. That's exactly what it is. Um, I'm, I'm having a blast here. I've, I've
1: always thought this was uh, – uh, that ETSU could be a goldmine. I, I I never understood why uh, success hadn't come more readily to the program. Um, it, we got a great city. We got a great university. Uh, once the you know they brought the program back, and Coach Tor Bush decided it was time for um, him to uh, go hang out at the lake. You know, at his house on the lake, and the and the job came up. I got a chance to visit with Scott Carter who I, who I knew from Tennessee days and and got to meet uh our president Dr. Nolan got to see their passion their commitment to what was going on uh their desire to uh to to build this thing and and what football could become in their minds there was no question it was something I wanted to do um you know, I inherited a team that was hungry, that wanted to win. It, it, it reminded me a lot in, in in many, many ways of that Kentucky team when I first went there in 2006 had not achieved a lot of success and wanted it badly and, and were willing to listen. Now, uh, I think a lot of players probably thought I was crazy at first because – what I expected, what I wanted, and the way I did things was way different than than what had been done in the past. A little, little more intense. A little more intense. A lot. Well, this is just different. I, I had different expectations, which is fine. And, and uh, I know I'm not saying anything negative sure. about the previous. Story. They're good football <laughs> coaches, and and what. What they accomplished and getting this program to where it's at from oh. from where it was when they first I mean when they first bring football back uh, they didn't have footballs so they, they the, did that the, thing no where they practice for a year
0: without playing
1: practice and, for yeah. a year uh, you know just having to gather equipment uh, next thing you know playing at Science Hill and, do we do we have chains for practice yeah. you know. All all those little things, you know, there's a, a million, million things that had to go into it and, and to get it to where they got it to was a phenomenal job. Now I came in, uh, probably with higher expectations just because my, uh, My experiences here had not been tempered by all the restrictions that were here, all the limits that were here when they first brought football back. So I I expected the people, the the guys to elevate their game. I expected them to compete at a higher level. I expected them to be in the weight room, not just the time that was required, but what you needed to do to be successful. Uh, And that's just one example. So. Um, I was fortunate they had, had a great, you know, Austin Herricks, the Dylan Weigels, the Tremont Farrells, the Chris Boyer, the Austin Gatewood. Dylan, uh, those those guys were hungry, and, and they bought in, and they kind of drug the rest of the team with them. And, and in some cases, they drug them, you know, kicking and screaming and clawing, but they drug them with them. And, you know, it took us a few weeks but uh, during the season. But I think the guys started liking the results they were seeing on the field. They started feeling different. They started seeing a difference. And um, um, I think we were successful because the guys bought in but it's a whole lot easier for them to buy in when you're having some success. So the two kind of go hand in hand, and uh, it it was fun. It, it, if you had offered me eight wins going into the season, um, I probably wouldn't have accepted it because I wanted more, but I, I, I thought eight wins was
0: um,
1: – probably a little bit over what was actually realistic at the time. And looking back on it, there's, there's no reason why we shouldn't have won 10 or 11 games. You know, we, we had those opportunities. And uh, we were a great example of what happens if, if you go out there and you don't beat yourself, you hang around there, you give yourself a chance to end and you believe. And, and that's the one thing our team did is, is they started believing and
0: um, started being coachable.
1: At first they were pretty hard-headed, but
0: it, it, it got much better. Well, oh, and now you're in. Uh, you're one of several SoCon teams that are showing up in these FCS preseason top twenty-five. So, twenty nineteen is uh, going to be here before we know it. So, uh, you better go and get some of that fishing in before <laughs> before fall camp starts.
1: No question. And uh, we're we're trying to do all that we can. But uh, I'm I'm looking forward to the season. And who knows? Uh, I've told the guys. You know, last year the only the only time we were ever circled on anybody's schedule was if we were homecoming. You know, it, it, I don't know that uh, teams thought ETSU was a threat. Well, you win share of the championship, suddenly you become a threat. We got a lot of teams that's got our game circled on their calendar. I'm sure uh, because they want to get revenge. They want they want to put us back in our place. So if we're going to accomplish what we need to accomplish, uh, everything's got to go up. The the intensity, the concentration, the effort, the the desire, the commitment—it's all got to increase. And there's certainly no reason why we can't compete for the championship every year here. There's certainly no reason why we can't get to a point where we're competing for a national championship here. And that's that's what I expect to do. Um, we, we everything we need is here. We just got to we just got to believe, and we got to work for it. And uh, that's the two most important
0: ingredients in success. Well, Coach, again, really appreciate you being so generous with your time. Congratulations on the expanding family, and good luck to the Buccaneers this season.
1: Well, thank you. I've enjoyed our time, Russ, and uh, appreciate you coming up. Appreciate you giving me the uh, the platform to get out there and promote what we have here at ETSU, because I really believe we have a we have a great place. We have a great opportunity for um, for – students to come to get a quality education obviously we feel like we have a good place for for them to come and play football but uh uh, it's it's really a dynamic university that um, uh, has kind of laid dormant for a long long time a lot of people have known it but not enough And, and we're trying to get our brand out there and uh
0: opportunities like this certainly help give us that opportunity great well um, looking at some of these pictures of, of the stadium looks looks really nice out there the facilities are on the the upgrade here and the mini dome is still fully operational so no, it's, it's good to see the best uh probably
1: the best indoor facility practice facility in uh fcs football yeah, yeah. All right. and uh it's, it's not many places that uh, uh at our level that have an indoor facility much less one that uh you know, can seat eight thousand people or whatever, six thousand people, whatever it seats. So we're we're fortunate to have it. Then uh, uh, it gives us a great place to work out. It gives us a great place to practice. But uh, you know, it's it's a great facility for us to have. And and stadium is great. You need to come up
0: and watch a game. Sometime. Yeah, I, I would love to do that, uh, Coach. I know you got to run, man. Thanks so much for your time once again. Great, thank you. All right, y'all. There it is. ETSU head coach Randy Sanders. After we talked, I had a chance to go over to the new. ETSU Stadium actually hung out in Johnson City for a minute went inside the mini dome which I'd never been in which is a a really cool facility that they use for a lot of different things including indoor practice now and uh, they have of course the mini dome is where ETSU played football before they shut down the program about 10-15 years ago and when they restarted it a couple of years ago of course they could have just gone right back to the mini dome but they wanted to play outside Uh, they played their first year at science hill high school which has a great high school facility but uh, is nevertheless a high school facility they built a new stadium up there and i'd seen pictures of it folks the pictures of that place don't do it justice um william b green junior stadium is the name of etsu's new stadium and it is amazing for a southern conference stadium if you have a chance to go up and see a game in Johnson City I would highly recommend it I'm going to try and do that someday and uh wow I mean just a a great you know little 8,000 seat stadium they fill it up it's got a huge press box and it's all brand new very cool what they are doing over there ETSU and of course with Randy Sanders uh, you know getting them rolling up there a share of the Southern Conference Championship this past season and uh who knows you know I mean they could that's good football and you can make the FCS playoffs there and, and win. And uh, we'll see how far Randy Sanders is able to take that thing. And keep in mind, he's he's still a young coach. Um, if he has success there, wouldn't be surprised to see bigger schools coming after him. Also want to say a special thanks to ETSU sports information guy, David Houston, who absolutely went above and beyond the call of duty in helping to arrange this interview. Really appreciate david's help uh so there you go if you enjoyed this and you haven't already feel free to go back and check out some of the previous episodes we have great conversations up there with a number of people uh, including bob kessling uh, my former co-host on the drive terry fair uh, todd howell from wbir And Joan Cronin, who I believe is going into the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame the week of this recording. So go check those out. I got another big one that I'm getting set to record and uh, we'll have up soon that I'm really excited about. So again, thanks for checking this out and thanks for all the kind words. I really like the new voice message feature here on Anchor FM. If you want to send me some feedback, And I will play these on the podcasts. If you want to talk about an episode you listen to, if you've got a question, if you want to rant, call me names, whatever, uh, the voice message feature on Anchor is really cool. And all you have to do is go to the link in my show notes, just tap on it, and you can record the message right into your phone. It gets sent to me, and then I'll play them on the podcast and uh, respond to them. So pretty cool thing. Go to Anchor.fm. Click on the link in my show notes and send me some feedback. I'd love to hear from you. Our first voice message comes from Chase, who had some really kind things to say. Russell Chase Everett here. Hey man, just wanted to throw some appreciation your way. Um, I'm a big fan of the radio show, um, but I'm, I think I'm a bigger fan of the podcast so far. Uh, I think it's a nice change of pace. I know with radio, you know, there's there's time restrictions and you can't really dive in deep into interviews and to, to really get to know people um i just finished listening to the uh, podcast with uh with joan and uh i think it was really great man i think there's a lot to be learned um from people who have experienced life like she has um so yeah man i just appreciate you using your platform uh to give folks like me a chance to uh to listen and to learn um Keep doing what you're doing, man. Thanks a lot. Well, thanks a lot, Chase. Really appreciate those kind words, man. And again, I really like the voice message feature. Send me some love. Show me some love on the voice message thing. If you don't want to show love either, you want to be critical, that's fine too. Just go do it and I'll I'll play these here on future episodes of the Russell Smith Podcast. Got another one coming, as I said, soon. Really looking forward to it. Thanks again for checking this one out. We'll talk again soon here on the Russell Smith Podcast.